risen. Let's try one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. One more time. He is risen. Amen. Father, thanks for this morning. Uh, thanks for your love for us. Lord, we ask that you would display your risen resurrection power in our midst today. We ask that you would strengthen our hearts. We ask that you would bring dead things to life. We pray that you would bring light into darkness. And we pray, Father, that you would help every person here leave here with a new hope, a living hope. Not a hope as the world hopes, but the hope that you give, the hope that is eternal. So God, we're not sufficient, we're not adequate to make these things happen, but we pray for those miracles this morning. Please change us, God, from the inside out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning. Happy Easter to you. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Um, this is where we're at in our church Bible reading plan. We're finishing up this morning uh, section in John's gospel known as the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, just to state the obvious this morning, um, this, is, this is not your typical Easter uh, text because uh, the cross has still not happened and the resurrection has still not happened. And yet, um, the implications of the resurrection are here, as we'll, as we'll look at this morning. But I'm just going to read John 17, the first five verses, and we'll get into it. John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Pray with me one more time. God, thanks for today. We completely acknowledge our weakness. We ask that you would open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. Amen. So the theme of these five verses and of this chapter and of this book and of the entire Bible is the glory of God. Is the glory of God. The word glory is mentioned five different times in, these, in, five, in three different forms. In these first five verses, you'll notice in verse 1, uses the word glorify two times. In verse 4, it uses the past tense of glorified. And then in verse 5, it uses the word glorify again. And then the word uh, glory. Um, you'll see it also later on uh, in some verses that I, that I didn't read throughout John chapter 17. Um, I said it's also the theme not only of this, this book, and, or of these verses and of this chapter, um, but also of this book 
uh, in John chapter 1. Again, we've talked about this as we've been going through the Upper Room Discourse, but, but in the introduction. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then if you jump down in John chapter 1 to verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then a few verses later he says, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And as I just said, not only is it the theme of these verses and of this chapter and of this book, but of the whole Bible in Genesis chapter 1, the very first verses of the Bible. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, before there was anything, there was just God. That's what makes him glorious. He has no beginning, and he has no end. He is the great I am. He has always just been there. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses prays this unbelievably bold prayer on Mount Sinai as he's up there, surrounded in kind of a glory cloud. God is there, yet God is also kind of hiding his glory from him. But in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, literally Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back. And, and that's kind of how it's translated in English. It's literally, it's the idea of, you'll see where I just was. You'll see where I just was. You'll see my back, but my face you shall not see. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved images. In Isaiah chapter 48, verses 11 through 13, he says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? Profaned, My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first and the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth, together. And that was just a real quick overview of my opening statement that I said that the theme of not just these verses and of this chapter and of this book, but of the entire Bible is of the glory of God. And, and my big idea that I just want to propose to you this morning is that if the glory of God is the theme of these verses and of this chapter and of this book and of the Bible, then it should be the theme of our lives as well. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31, So, 
whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And it's important that we understand this morning, um, and I want to try to communicate this as much as I know how, although I feel very inadequate this morning and feel like I don't have words to convey this grand topic of God's glory, um, and especially because it's Easter, I, I want us to understand that in speaking of God's glory, the glory of the Trinity, the glory of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we could not be any farther removed categorically from pastel colors, chocolate bunnies, and Easter eggs. We, we could not, you, you cannot get farther away on different ends of the spectrum from sentimental traditions and superficial holidays and little things that we do than speaking about the glory of God. And I say that because I just have to urge you this morning, as I've been urging myself all week and, and trying to, to really guard my heart, that as we talk about this high and holy idea of God's glory, I, I, I've got to call us to try to do our best to, to set aside whatever preoccupations might be um, taking precedent in our minds and in our souls. Because as we just read, God is all about his glory, and we were created just like everything else, to bring him glory and to be preoccupied with nothingness, shadows and traditions and little things that we do that have nothing to do with the power of his resurrection and of his glory is not a good thing. <laughs> it's not a good thing. And so, out of these verses this morning, we'll, we'll wander a little bit more um, into John chapter 17 than just the first five verses. But in speaking of God's glory, here's kind of the little outline I want to follow. I want to give you two definitions, two categories, and then two implications of God's glory. Two definitions, two different categories, and then two implications. Number one, the the two different definitions, just the definitions of the words that are used in the Old and New Testament. One, in the Old Testament, um, where Moses prayed in that passage I just read a little bit ago in Exodus chapter 33, he said, show me your glory. The Hebrew word is kavod, kavod. And it means to honor, to bring splendor to, glory, honor, dignity, reverence. But like it's at its core, at its essence, what it really just means is just weight. The root word just means weight. There is no weightier being in all of the universe than God. I've spoken of this before. I've told you guys, you know, we've got four boys, and so, you know, wrestling just happens all the time in our house growing up. I try to avoid it now at this point because now I'm the one getting hurt um, as the boys get bigger. Uh, but every now and then, uh, I can still get them down, and here's what I've got on them. Wait. <laughs> and every now and then, I can just get them pinned, and I'm like, don't mess with the 220 pounds, baby. That's what, that's what that feels like. Um, there's nobody weightier than God. 
kavod. In the New Testament, the word that is used here uh, in various forms is the word doxa. Doxa, if you're familiar with the English word doxology, we sing praises to God. Where in the Old Testament, the word kavod means weight. In the New Testament, the word doxa, it, at like its core, it just means light or brightness or splendor or, or shining. Um, and they essentially mean the same thing uh, in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, when it comes to that, when it comes to that section in Exodus where Moses says, "Show me your glory," in, in once translated into Greek, the word "doxa" is used there. So they mean kind of the same thing: is that to bring honor, glory, splendor, um, but weight, weight and light, weight and light. This is at the core of who God is when we think about his glory. There is no one weightier and there is no one brighter. So the Bible says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. John MacArthur, speaking of God's glory, says God's glory refers to the consummate beauty of the totality of his perfections. God is the only being in all of existence who can be said to possess inherent glory. We don't just give it to him. It is his by virtue of who he is. If no one ever gave God any praise, he would still be the glorious God that he is because he was glorious before any beings were created to worship him. His glory is his being, simply the sum of what he is regardless of what we do or do not do in recognition of it. God's glory is all that makes him God. It is all of his godness. And this is what Jesus is praying for in John chapter 17. Again, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, those are two different definitions, but I want to give you two different categories as well. One is probably what has already come to mind as I've described God as the, as the weightiest, brightest, most shining being in all of the universe. Um, and that would be the glory of his majesty. It's what happened to Moses up on the mountain. Now, even though he didn't fully see it, he just saw where he just was. He saw his back, as it were, and he came down from the mountain with his face glowing because of this encounter with this God. And, and this first category of glory that I want to talk about is the glory of his majesty. The glory of his majesty. It's specifically the glory that Jesus is referring to in John chapter 17, verse 5, when he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus Christ was not created. He is one with the Father and with the Spirit. He existed in all of eternity past. The Bible says that it was by his word that things were spoken into existence, that from him and to him and through him are, are all things. Um, and when he's speaking here of this glory 
that he is asking that he's going to be returned to. And again, I told you that this isn't about the resurrection necessarily, but the resurrection is here. Is that Jesus is looking past the cross and everything that's about to come, and he's looking forward to the glory that he's going to be, that he's going to be restored to. And it is Christ's certainty of resurrection to the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed that propels him through the agony of the cross. Throughout the years, I've, I've heard um, many preachers say, and I think I probably said it myself, uh, uh, I've heard many preachers say that there is no resurrection without the cross. And that's true. And the, and the point being is that we all want that resurrection life, but we don't want to go through the cross. And that's true. There is no resurrection without, without the cross. But the opposite is also true. And you see it here in Jesus' life. Is I don't think that there's any cross without the resurrection. Is the way that Jesus went forward and bore all the darkness of humanity and all of our sin is because he had the hope of resurrection. This is what the Bible's talking about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, when it talks about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. The joy that was set before Jesus was the promise that he was going to be restored to the Father's glory. And I say all this because it's very practical for, for us. Now listen, just as that little quote that I just read from John MacArthur is that Jesus is the only one who, and, and God is the only one who is inherently glorious. It, it, it's, it's who he is. he is. He is glorious. But in the same way, we have this same promise of resurrection, this same promise of glory. And if that is not our hope in this life, there is no way to bring honor and glory to God in the trials and in the difficulties that each and every one of us face. And it's why we get excited about Easter. It's why we get excited about the resurrection. Because apart from this hope, we would have no hope. And again, in this passage, even though the cross and the resurrection have not happened, Jesus speaks as though they already have. If you look at verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now this word accomplished is the exact same word uh, teleos or tetelestai, the, the different variants of the same Greek word that's used over in chapter 19, verses 28 and verse 30. If you want to flip over there just quickly. In chapter 19, verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, same word as translated accomplished, back in John 17, 4, and then the last words that John records that Jesus said in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. To Telestai, or teleos as it's translated here, it is accomplished. And he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Even though it's not yet happened, he speaks as though it is and I think there's, there's a great, although this isn't really one of the implications that I want to spend a whole lot of time on, but it's so important for us to understand, is that the only way that we can live victoriously in this life is by being certain that the resurrection is coming. The resurrection is coming because Jesus has made it happen. 
Sinclair Ferguson said, since man was made for the glory of God, he can never be what he was intended to be until his life is properly focused on the glory of God. So God's glory does not detract from man's life. Instead, his glory is the sun around which the whole of life must revolve if there is to be the light and the life of God in our experience. Since we were made for his glory, we will always malfunction whenever we fail to live for that purpose according to the maker's instructions. In other words, if God's glory is not at the center of your life, just like if the sun was not at the center of our universe or we would become detached from its gravitational pull, we would fly off into orbit somewhere until something else would grab a hold of it a hold of us, but there is nothing else. God's glory is to be at the center of our lives. Um, and it is this promise of resurrection and being with Jesus in the glory of his majesty that pulls us through all the difficulties of this life. But there's not just the glory of his majesty. There's also a second category that I want to give to you, and that is the glory of his humility. The glory of his humility. Again, in verse 5, Jesus is praying very specifically to be restored to this glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. But there's another type of glory that is being referred to here. And again, John chapter 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Now, throughout John's gospel, John is written many times about how Jesus will say, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. When Jesus performs his first, his first miracle um, at the wedding at Canaan, he turns the water into wine. You know how that whole thing happens, right? His, his mom comes up to him and sees that they're going to run short on the wine, and she, you know, she, says, she asks him to take care of it. He says, woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But he graciously obeys the the wish of his mother, and again, all to the Father's glory. But throughout the Gospel of John, especially in chapter 7, several times, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. But here, the hour has come. And I want you to listen to John chapter 12. And again, just hang, hang with me here in understanding the, this glory of the humility and the cross. In John chapter 12, starting in verse 23, listen to how John and Jesus speak of his glory. John chapter 12, verse 23 says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is right before the upper room discourse, all this one conversation that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For whoever loses, his whoever loses his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus begins to speak of God glorifying his name. And then he speaks of dying. He goes on, verse 27. Just listen. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God speaks from heaven. Verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it 
said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What is he speaking of here? Is he speaking of being lifted up from the earth in his ascension to that glory of his majesty? No. The next verse says, verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was not talking about the ascension, the resurrection, being ascended to the glory of his majesty, but the glory of the cross, the glory of humility. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They're saying, how can you say that he's going to die? The Messiah must remain forever. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. The light, the glory. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though, they, though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah must be fulfilled. And then he quotes from the book of Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and they would be healed. And now just hang with me. I know I'm reading a lot here, but hang with me. Verse 41 of John chapter 12. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him out of but out of fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And listen, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There are two different types of glory. The glory of his majesty, of his essence of who he was before the world began, and now seated at the Father's right hand, the hope of resurrection, but there is another glory, the glory of humility, the glory of the cross. And I don't think I have to try very hard to try to convince every one of us here that we would naturally love the glory of his majesty. We should love it. Maybe we're terrified of it because we don't know him as Savior, and you should be if you don't. But the glory that I don't think we love, the glory that we don't embrace, is this other kind of glory, this glory of humility, this glory of the cross. We can very much be like the Jews in, those, in, in, in that day where we love the glory that comes from men, but we don't love the glory that comes from God. And understand that Jesus... In, in light of who God was, Jesus came. And this is how, this is how Paul describes him in Philippians chapter 2. He, he, he says, Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, in, in other words, he was very God of very God, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself 
and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even though Jesus was in very nature God, he knew that the only proper response to the glory of God's majesty was the glory instead of humility. Even though he was God. He knew that if God was God and got the glory of his majesty... The only proper response as God in the flesh, as a human being, Jesus came to show us how to live, was that he would respond in total humility. But this is not what we do. This is the essence of our sin. It's why we need to repent. It's why we're broken. Because we love the praise that comes from men rather than the praise that comes from God. And on this earth, as Jesus' disciples, we are to bring him honor and glory by trying absolutely imperfectly. And in no way can we we ever um, uh, produce in and of ourselves not just the glory of his majesty, obviously, but even the glory of the humility that he showed at the cross. But this humility, folks, is to mark our lives. It is the only right response to the glory of God. Of his majesty. And yet, we all are oftentimes, and I know I am, preoccupied with so many other things. And Jesus came to show us, as John said back in chapter one, to show us the glory of the Father. That we have seen his glory, not only the glory of his majesty, but the glory of his humility. And I ask you this morning does your heart Does your heart embrace the glory of the cross and the glory of the humility that Jesus Christ showed to the glory of the Father but for our salvation? Do you embrace it? Is the cross cross precious to you? Let me turn now to two implications Again, those two definitions, but also the two categories of majesty and humility, but to two implications. Number one, very straightforward. If the cross is not glorious to you, you are not saved. If the cross is not glorious to you, you are not saved. Jesus says here, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says this is eternal life. Eternal life is not just living forever somewhere. Everybody does that. Everybody is going to live somewhere forever, either in heaven or in hell, forever. 
Eternal life is more than just existing forever. Eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And again, if you'll just follow the logic here, the son is asking the father to glorify him. The father is going to glorify the son. He's going to give him strength to go to the cross and to show this humility, to show how humanity should live, totally broken, humble, before the glory of his majesty. And so the father wants to glorify the son so that the son will glorify the father. And so he does that and he goes to the cross and he pays the price, the sacrifice, so that we through faith could come to Jesus and Jesus could introduce us, as it were, to the father and to know him. But if we're going to have eternal life and eternal life is knowing this God, it's knowing Jesus Christ, what is Jesus Christ all about? He's all about the Father's glory. And if, and if eternal life is knowing God, what is God all about? He's all about the glory of the Son. And so if eternal life is knowing this God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, and God is all about the glory of the Son, and the Son is all about the glory of the Father, you better believe that we too better love the glory of God. Not just the glory of his majesty, but the glory of his humility. Because the cross was God's plan. The cross was his idea. Although man thought that he cooked it up as some sort of a, you know, the Romans thought they cooked it up as some sort of a torture, punishment to keep people in line. It was in the mind of God long before that to bring about the salvation of the world. And this is what makes us Christians is that we look at the cross and we don't just, it's not just a trinket. It's not just something that we hang on our walls. And, I'm not, and that's okay to do that. It's not just something that we wear around our necks. But the cross is the glory of God. Listen to how Paul speaks of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, for the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing. To the world, like they say, like, what, what are you doing? Like you worship some guy that hung on a cross like 2,000 years ago? Like, like, what is that? It's folly. It's foolishness. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see why I said, if you, if you look at the cross and you do not think it's glorious, you are not saved. And here, I'm not judging anybody's heart. I don't know if you think it's glorious or not, but I'm trying, honestly, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. If you don't think the cross is glorious, if you don't look at the cross and are not thankful, because on that place, on that tree, at that point in time, in real time, space, history, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ came from heaven, born of a virgin, lived a sinless, spotless life, and on those hours on the cross, took on himself all the darkness, all the sin of all of humanity for the world, if that is not glorious to you, then you are not saved. And my, my plea to you this morning is that you would turn and acknowledge to God that you've lived a life where you don't think it's glorious and you think that it's nothing and that you would turn from that belief and you would turn towards him and ask him for forgiveness and for repentance. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who, who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Is the cross precious to you? Paul, in it's the next letter to the same church in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. And then rolling into chapter 4, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And he's saying that this is how we're changed, that our living is transformed by our looking. That as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are saved for the first time when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim. The light of his glory and grace. It's how you're saved, and that's also how you're changed. He goes on, the beginning of chapter 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would recommend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, listen, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them. What is the, what is the God of this world? Who is Satan? Listen. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from what? From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan wants to keep you from seeing the beauty of the cross. He wants to keep you from seeing the glory of the cross. He goes on, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, just like he did in the beginning of creation, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ. That's where the glory is. Do you know in the book of Revelation what Jesus' face looks like? Jesus' face, when he shows up to John in this vision on the island of Patmos, again, after the resurrection, after his ascension, John says that his face is like the sun shining in all of its strength. He says that his eyes were like burning flames of fire. That is the glory of his majesty. But when Paul says here that he is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, it's not just that face the face of his majesty. But it's also the face that was bloodied, that was beaten, that had its beard ripped out, and that had a crown of thorns pushed down on its head. 
And again, all that happened because God was pouring his wrath out upon him. And the punishment that we deserved was laid upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Is both the glory of his majesty and the glory of his humility precious to you? It is only by seeing it as precious that you are saved. It is the Son's passion for the glory of the Father and is the Father's passion for the glory of the Son that provided eternal life for his people. If the Son had not been passionate about the glory of the Father, he would have never went to the cross. And if the Father had not been passionate about the glory of the Son, he would have never raised him from the dead. And in this is our hope. Second implication of God's glory is that only God's glory can be the source of the church's unity. I want you to jump over in John chapter 17 <coughs> to verse 22. And Jesus here throughout this chapter Again, glory isn't just the theme of the first five verses, but throughout the chapter. And he mentions glory here again towards the end. One time here in verse 22. And he's praying not just for the 11, but he's also praying for us now. He's praying for all those, from verse 20, who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I here today, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. And verse 22 says this, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Okay? Now, there's something here that I think is, is pretty important. Is that many times Christians in different churches and pastors and stuff like that will we'll talk a lot about unity. But we talk about it in the exact opposite order of unity and glory that Jesus talks about it here in verse 22. We always say that if we will just be unified, then God will just be glorified. And there is some truth in that, but it's actually the opposite, and it's not the starting point of what Jesus says here in verse 22. Jesus says, the glory that you have given to me, and I would argue both the glory of his majesty and also the glory of his humility, all those glories, the glory that you have given to me, he says, I have given to them. That, it's a purpose clause, a purpose statement, verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. So you see what he's saying? He's saying that if the church, if God's people, if we do not see God's glory as central and as precious to everything that we do, we cannot be united. It doesn't happen the other way around. It doesn't happen by us just trying to be unified around unity's sake. I've gotten together so many pastors luncheons and conferences and gatherings and different things like that. And, I, and again, I, I probably am going to sound like a jerk, but I don't know how else to say this. And 
Sometimes, and all, usually at all those meetings, all the pastors get together and they just talk about, let's be unified, let's be unified, let's be unified. And then we talk about the cross and we talk about salvation and we talk about the gospel. And they don't believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they don't think that the cross was enough. And they're not even really sure if the resurrection actually physically happened. They think it was just kind of more of a spiritual resurrection or just some sort of a fairy tale. But those things are the glory of God. And so it's hard to be unified with people who do not understand the the glory of both the cross, of his humility, and of his majesty. But God wants us to be unified around his glory and all that he has done through the power of his resurrection. There's another little theme here that's very closely tied with the glory of God throughout this chapter. And that is speaking of the name. If you'll notice, look at verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Down in verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. If you'll look at uh, the last verse of this section, verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This idea of the name, if you'll remember those verses that I read from Exodus at the beginning, when Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name. The idea of of God's name in scriptures that there is nothing more holy. His glory is tied to his name. His name is glorious. He is, he is the glorious one. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Did you hear that? A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor, and the implication there is the favor that comes from that name, is better than silver or gold. Proverbs 18, verse 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. And Jesus, over and over again in this passage, in uniting us in his glory, has given us the same name. The same name. It's the name of Jesus, the name of his glory that rests upon us. If you've ever coached a team or any sort of sport or maybe been on a team, um, there can be conflict a lot of times within the team. Uh, And one of the things that maybe you've had to do as a coach or maybe you've heard a coach say is that guys, remember, we're all wearing the same jersey. (laughs) We all got the same name across the chest. Um, it's this name of Jesus that unites us. And to have access to his name is to have access to his glory in all that he's given us. As I was, I'm not making this up, but as I was studying this passage this past week and thinking about God's glory and about his name and all that he's given us, uh, I, my, on my phone, a little deal popped up that somebody was trying to use my Apple ID to sign into my account in Sri Lanka. I don't even know where Sri Lanka is. Asia, I think. Is that a, is that a country or a city? I don't know. Anyway, but as I was studying this, and I, 
and it said, uh, accept, and I was like, I don't know anybody in Sri Lanka, so denied. What were they trying to do? They were trying to use my name to get access to, and whatever, I mean, the joke's on them, there's not a, lot of, not a whole lot there to, to rob from me, but, um, but they were trying to use my name to gain access to whatever they thought was there. And guys, God has placed upon us the glory of his name. And it's what unites us. And it's what makes us one. And this name, it's better than riches. It's better than gold. It's why I get so angry and why I get so frustrated with people who want to use the name of Jesus to try to gain riches for themselves or to try to gain something of this world. The name of Jesus, as Proverbs said, it's better than riches. And it's what we've been given, what we've been given in him. And the name of Jesus is now the name that is above every name because of his resurrection from the dead. That God looked upon the glory of his humility and he exercised the glory of his majesty. And 2,000 years ago, he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And from that time forth, for the last 2,000 years, Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit in his people and the proclamation of his word, not just from a pulpit on a Sunday morning, but in everyday conversation, has been building his church. And we are those who bear, who bear his name. And I just want to ask you this morning, if you're here, maybe you call Mercy Hill home, but maybe you don't. I want to ask you again this morning, is the glory of God, both of his majesty and of his humility, is it precious to you? Do you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are saved? Do you know that if you were to die today, where you would spend eternity? Do you know God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have eternal life? If you don't, I want to invite you right now. I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle, raise your hand, close your eyes, pray, pray a prayer, but I'm going to ask you right where you sit right now to call upon the name of God, the name of Jesus. The Bible says that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you will call upon him right now where you sit and ask him to save you, he will do just that. His very person, the Holy Spirit, will come and live inside of you. The dirtiness, the filthiness that you feel because of sin. Not only sins that you've committed, but sins that have been committed against you. He can wash those away. He can lift them from you because he's glorious. And he has the power to do so.
Worship team, I'm going to invite you to come up. We're going to close. Bow your heads with me and I'll just ask you a couple more questions. Number one, is God's glory, both the glory of his majesty and his humility, is it precious to you? And are you responding with a life of humility? Not trying to earn anything, but in light of all that he's done, Will you humble yourself and give him your life? Or are you fighting it? Are you resistant to it? Do you love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God? Are you certain that you have eternal life? I know I just asked this, but I can't not do it again. Do not leave here today if you do not know Jesus as your Savior. What could be more important than knowing where you're going to spend eternity? And if you know where you're going to spend eternity, I promise you, it makes all the difference on how you live in the here and now. Knowing that you can be with Jesus forever will completely change your life now in the muck and mire and all the nitty-gritty stuff that we go through every single day. Jesus took on all the muck and mire of the cross and all the darkness that wasn't his by looking forward to the resurrection on the other side. By knowing that he was going to be raised the glory of the Father. We were created for this same glory. That's why the last request of Jesus in this prayer in John 17 is he says, Father, I pray that these whom you have given me would be with me where I am and that they may see my glory that you've given me because you love me. No matter who you are, or where you come from, you were created to behold the glory of God. Trust in Jesus right now. Ask him to open the eyes of your heart that you might see him for who he is. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me.